Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, aka Twitter's Ilana Brooklyn. And this is the podcast for nerds who think that Danny the Street probably sprung into existence out of the first brick thrown at Stonewall. That's right, Pride is an uprising, and Doom Patrol is queer as fuck. And today we're back to finish our coverage of Doom Patrol, the hot show on DC's streaming service. Uh, and we, we covered the first two episodes of the show back this spring because in the beginning, we just wanted to determine, you know, so this is a new streaming platform. I hadn't really been interested in Titans. We just wanted to determine, is Doom Patrol any good and worth watching in the first place? And uh, my longtime comics mentor, Mark Argent, and my uh, frequent now co-conspirator, John Arminio, both joined me to talk about the beginning of the show. And we concluded, yes, the show is... <sighs> You know, Mark was a bit mixed, but agreed it was worth looking into more. And then John and I were both like, yeah, no, let's do this. And um, so we've been watching the rest of the show, watching it through the end and enjoying it enough to say, let's come back. Let's talk about uh, the whole series because uh, we've enjoyed it. But we do have a slight shift in our lineup of who's joining us today. Uh, John Arminio is back with us. And this time we also have a new panelist joining us, um, comics writer Ben Kahn. Ben was on a uh, was on about a month ago to talk about their comic series, and I am super excited uh, to have them back again. Uh, ben is Ben B Khan is a comic book writer based in New York. Their latest series, Griffin: Galaxy's Most Wanted, is their third collaboration with artist Bruno Hidalgo after Shaman and Heavenly Blues. Griffin is a genderqueer anti-fascist space opera published by SBI Press exclusively on Comicsology. And, uh, and so, uh, yes, nice, nice, nice to have you back again. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, uh, for this episode. I have so many things to say about this show. Yay. And we'll get to hear them because we actually haven't heard you about the show at all yet. Yay. <laughs> and also joining me, return champion of Doom Patrol hood, John Arminio is a longtime comic book devotee and retailer who peddles his wares at Comics Connection in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Along with comics, another of his great passions is film, and you can hear him discuss the artistic medium on recent episodes of the podcast Hellbent for Horror, Film 89, 26 Movies from Hell, and recently with me talking about how much we love the Secret Sex series by DC Comics from Gail Simone and Nicola Scott and crew. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's an honor to be back. Thank you for having me. Yay. I know it's all about Doom Patrol, but seriously, Secret Six is so good. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have the opportunity to revisit it. And I would just say to our listeners, if you're not, if you haven't watched Doom Patrol and you don't know if you want to, go back and listen to our episode from earlier this spring. From here on out, it's spoilers. It's spoilers everywhere. And that earlier episode really will give you a sense of whether or not you want to watch the show or not. So go back, listen to it, and then come and join us. Um, you know, I, I kicked off last episode our last coverage um one of the things i talked about was how i realized that the show was really smart in a lot of its casting not just in that the actors were really good but that they cast actors whose actual lives had some interesting parallels to the characters they were playing it was like a it was like a metatextual thing, sort of how, you know, when Iron Man cast Robert Downey Jr., they were sort of also implying the whole former alcoholic context from the life of the star that we knew. And, you know, when they cast Brandon Fraser, who is someone who'd recently come out about having been a victim of uh, sexual assault 
and having his you know bodily autonomy violated, and then now he is playing a character who's as as robot man whose body has like literally been violated. We should have pointed out a number of these with the characters, you know, including um, including Cliff Steele and uh, Matt Boomer. I didn't really- Matt and Boomer Matt brought Boomer. so much to that role as Larry yeah. Trainer. Agreed. Yeah, yes. Totally. And one person who I did not mention because I didn't put two and two together was Diane Guerrero. I had forgotten this. She actually had come out as undocumented a number of years ago. Um, she wrote an op-ed for like the New York for the LA Times, and she wrote about how she's 14 years old. She came home from school one day. And her parents and older brother were gone. Ice had taken them. They had like ripped them out of their freaking home, taken them, didn't leave a note, didn't tell this like teenage girl what the fuck happened to her family. Um, her neighbor like ran and told her what had happened. They like basically left this teenager on the street because Ice is the Gestapo and is completely fucking evil. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, so she has a life story that is obviously incredibly pertinent to the fucking concentration camps on the border situation we're in. Um, but it also connects to her character, I think, because you're looking at someone who ha- has had to be alone um, as part of her own survival. And obviously, there's a complete difference between the situation that was created for her in real life, which was violence done to her and her parents by the state, right? Although certainly mental health institutions pretty much qualify as state violence, certainly as they're depicted in this show. What, totally. Fucking Bureau of Normalcy. Like, yeah, Bureau of Normalcy a... targeted her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. Yes, Bureau of Normalcy equals ICE. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, B. That's perfect. So, yeah. So, yet again, another... And, and again, like... She, she, she's someone who's been public about this. So again, like this is a piece of the story that, you know, might've been part of what they considered and in terms of shaping the character. And then obviously, of course, her acting is tremendous in this show. So, and, and in real life, Timothy Dalton also banged a Sasquatch. That's also, <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> oh my God. Ugh. You know, I really don't know too much about him other than how good he was in um, uh, A Lion in Winter. I love him as the wonderfully scene-chewing villain in Hot Fuzz. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, he was so good. Yeah, I've I've always had a soft spot for Timothy Dalton because I've grown up as a huge James Bond fan, and I've always seen him as sort of like the dark horse great James Bond that everybody likes to crap on. So seeing him in this superhero, like secret villain role I think was just a joy for me when he spent mm-hmm. when he spent all that time like in the white space being held prisoner whoever in the costuming department decided to turn Timothy Dalton into a hipster wizard <laughs> bravo yeah it was like oh my god fuck you and you're like necklaces like what even is this I, I agree they went I full agree. Johnny Depp with the scarves I loved it yes totally oh my god you know, I, I think we all probably called it in advance that, you know, Niles Calder was like straight up evil. I mean, yeah. you know, the show establishes from the start that he's not a purely heroic individual because he's, you know, gaslights people left and right and lies and manipulates. But the show isn't necessarily clear that like, nope, he's a villain until later on. But 
I feel like I already knew the fact that he'd caused the main characters accidents, like from the comics. I feel like I, I had that knowledge, but I don't know how you guys feel about the way the show presented that, especially in a show with so many evil fathers, just so, evil father after evil father. Not having read much of the comics, like the only real Niles Calder comic I read is the Gerard Way one, where he's almost like a used salesman carnival barker type of con man, like mm-hmm. where he's like comically inept for one issue. Um, but knowing all about the comics, I knew he definitely wasn't heroic and there was like lots of dark secrets. To me, the moment when I knew this was a bad guy, like this was a guy who, if it, if it's still gray, isn't a very dark shade of gray, is when in his flashback, ep- in like really hit the, his big kind of origin flashback episode and, uh, and, Ms., and uh, Mr. Nova makes it very clear, like, answer one simple question and this all ends all your for like all your doom patrol lives and like this all goes away and just purely out of pride and no one knows Niles Calder made very clear that he would let them all die purely for his own pride was when like Mm. that was a very defining moment for me watching it and what I, I I totally agree but what also makes him so dangerous is how good he is at line and manipulation gaslighting because like when he rescues jane from the uh, mental institution he's so like soft-spoken and sweet and he like you know gently caresses her hand and cuts the hospital band from her wrist and says you'll yeah. never have to wear one of these again here and you're safe t-rex now. yeah <laughs> sorry that's very important for me the, it, it was very important for me too Th- that's another thing that this show gets right so many times as the music cues um and so yeah so it, it might seem in congress to have t-rex played that moment but it feels so right in that instance mm. i think it's also like what's so insidious about his lying is how much he enjoys the lie like when mr nobody traps him and like well you know what ends up being this kind of repeating death cycle like it still starts out as like his little slice of paradise which is him leading these superhero team and having pancakes and it's such this manipulative lie that he's like gaslit into existence, but he loves the lie. He loves living in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the, there was a really good essay that I should link about um, the way disability is portrayed in the show. And basically the person was saying that they felt like the majority, this is, you know, obviously there's like a million and one different folks with disability that can have different analysis. They felt that like the show had done a pretty good job, but was really curious about how they were going to handle Niles Calder because in the comic, as is often true um, with the stuff with like Professor X, Niles Calder's sort of parallel, uh, they always sort of show... Niles, sometimes he's in a wheelchair, sometimes he doesn't need it. And they sort of portray it as him being duplicitous. And, you know, in real life, people who use wheelchairs are constantly questioned. If you ever see a person who's usually in a wheelchair, not in the wheelchair, people are like, aha, got you. You don't really need that wheelchair. When it's like, no, I need it sometimes, not all the time. And like, why is this your business? Get out of my face. So they specifically said that they were concerned about how they'd be handling that because that is like literally a trope. You know, Niles is untrustworthy. We get that. And I, I think he's in the wheelchair the whole time that he's in the modern era. So, huh. Yeah. I think yeah. The, only, the only time he's really not is, you know, when he's, you know, having an affair with the Sasquatch and when they're in the 
first or the past era of the Doom Patrol, and that's him as a hologram anyway, mm, if I remember correctly. That's true. So he's, yeah, whenever he's in his corporeal body, he's in a wheelchair. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome because that was something people were concerned with. I mean, you know, obviously, like a show with a character called, you know, Crazy Jane is there's going to be questions about representation and, you know, like multiple personality disorder, like isn't a thing. Um, certainly not as portrayed. And, uh, but you know, I, I ultimately like it's sort of a body horror take on superpowers. And I just, I really loved this whole sequence where, I mean, Rita's whole Rita Farr's a whole, Oh yeah, you want to talk about body horror? <laughs> yeah, we read a read a far's whole like character arc in the series from her her hatred of her body um and like her whole way of changing her relationship in it. Like the sequence where she is trying to reform herself and doing the mantra of the person who is breathing is me. Like that's a real mantra for to use if you have like a panic attack. Like that's actually a real one. And, you know, she, like, she's, you know, it starts with her in that episode saying the person who is breathing is me a million times over. And then she says, the person who is crawling through the basement is me, the person. And then she sort of moves like the person who deserves better than this is me. I'm, I wish I'd taken better. Like notes the person like forming this leg is me. Yeah. 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 I felt like I loved uh, Rita Farr in this show. Like, again, having only kind of seen the animated, some like their animated appearances, some of the more recent comics, not having gone all the, no, like having read their whole history, uh, Rita Farr suddenly felt like of the kind of main Doom Patrol, the character who was there and not someone who I had a great sense of what kind of character they were, what their tragedy was that fit in with the theme. And I just feel like, Again, I just feel like this defined the character so completely and just made her such a three-dimensional human character. I feel like the comics never really got her before. Like, this this, this is her. I totally agree, because you know, in, in the past, she's just kind of had typical comic booky, like, bendy, stretchy powers. And I think this, her is an example of how the show avoids getting... Or avoids landmines because you could have had such a cliche character with like, oh, the self-absorbed actress, oh, the angsty teen girl, but it it just takes those tropes and flips them on their heads and gives us something like striking and original and true. Like with Rita Farr, like at at some point she says like the person who is sick of being judged is me. Yes, and she's that's, like yes. crawling oh, up the stairs as like a, as a as a blob, but it's still her. It's still who she is. It takes it's, a it's so great. It takes a wonderful character to pull off the line. I am trying to be a good person and you are ruining it. Now yeah. shut up and pick up these beads. I mean, God, it's so good. I, I, I love the fact that there's an episode called therapy patrol. Like the fact that there's a show that is like, you know, you should all be in therapy and that's a good thing. And even though they don't have an actual professional therapist. With no, because it's, it's Cliff's bootleg, like Jerry Ray Cliff. DIY group therapy, which is but like, just perfect. It will be. Yeah. But like, you know, it, 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 it's a good precedent that they're even saying that this is something that one should do. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I, 
I mean, I really loved with this whole season how much more focused on the internal it was than having big elaborate set pieces. Like I was so much more just invested in these characters, especially just given how rich and how expansive and how effective all of their main character arcs were. And I, I kind of got the impression that that was due to budgetary constraints and maybe the same thing, uh, is due to, um, or caused Timothy Dalton's kind of limited screen time, but I think it turned Mm -hmm. those possible disadvantages into advantages. So it just, it's a credit to the writers for being able to utilize those things so in such an intelligent way. Therapy Patrol is essentially a bottle episode, yeah. and it's probably my favorite episode of the season. Yeah, I, it might be mine. Although I'll tell you, Francis Patrol, I fucking wept. I oh god, that I, you know that was an episode where I was watching it right after watching the very emotionally unsatisfying conclusion of Game of Thrones, and um, I was like. Yep, go and go watch something else now that I'll have feelings about rather than just feelings of disappointment. And, um, you know, I, I know that the whole thing with um, uh, Cliff Steele and his daughter really resonated for a lot of people. But that episode, it was all Larry's. It was all Larry's. I mean, ex- thank you. Exactly. Like the whole thing with Larry reconnecting with Larry Trainer reconnecting with his boyfriend who, you know, I had assumed was dead, but no, he wasn't. Why would he be dead? He would probably just be an, an elderly man. Well, I mean, granted, this is after the AIDS crisis. So who the fuck knows? And thankfully, the show does acknowledge all of that. Um, but his whole like reuniting. Well, I feel like the show almost kind of wanted to give us a fake out. Like I remember early on, one of Larry's dream sequences was. The bo- was the boyfriend John like all like radioactive and covered in tumors? So I feel like that you know it was Larry's like nightmare. But I wonder. But I think it was also a bit of a red herring fake out to make us think, oh, John died tragically somehow way yeah. back in the past. I mean, God, just you know, every single freaking like queer person who survived through the eighties is a superhero. Like mm-hmm. that's just the fucking reality of the genocide that Ronald yeah. Reagan allowed to happen on his watch by not actually treating this health crisis. You're here to that. And I just like the negative spirit compels Larry when he's sort of going through his, like, I'm having, I'm, I'm having dreams and visions sort of moments. Like the negative spirit forces Larry to socialize in the gay community, like in his mind as he's sort of, fading in and out and like the whole thing where like john is saying like look we're in a gay bar like you can dance with me in a gay bar like these are my friends these are other gay people we can like be with them we don't have to just be about us you can care other people can care about you you know like you you don't have to be alone and like in that particular time period context you know is it was just really powerful and i um you know, when realizing that he they could connect in person, I just fucking cried. Um, is there's I just I mean also like him like uh, John being like you haven't fucked anybody since JFK is like <laughs> that was such so a perfect tragic. moment. It's so tragic. I love John being like oh these strong arms just like flirting to the very end. Like I think that was the moment that broke okay. me. And I think the show does you know such I, a good job of setting the moment up because in episode seven when he's when the negative spirit is like kind of shut, shunting him between dreams of him and John in the truck, um, he kind of yells into the sky like, 
Uh, memory shouldn't change because I, I want a happier ending. History doesn't change. I don't change. I'm still the gaslighting, insecure hypocrite who ruined other people's lives instead of owning my own shit. And so he's, so we get a glimpse of his self-hatred that he's been bottling for decades. And so to get that sort of catharsis with Francis Patrol was, to, to me, all the more satisfying. I was telling a friend of mine, friend of the show, Sarah Rasher, about the scene with between Larry and and John, because I was like, you know what was a great antidote for that horrible end of Game of Thrones? And so I was telling Sarah, and Sarah doesn't know DC for, from Adam, you know, and hasn't watched any of the shows, didn't know the characters. And Sarah said, so this is the end we wanted for Stephen Bucky? And I was like, oh, you know, my, this was also like right after having seen Endgame and also being fairly disappointed, but not like totally disappointed. Man. Um, the whole John's lived his life time for me to live mine. I I know it's impossible for it to be this, but it couldn't help but feel like a total, like it was completely refuting Steve's ending in Endgame. Thank you. I, I, I couldn't believe that I hadn't put that together until Sarah mentioned it. But then I was like, you know, I know the show isn't lampshading that because... That's not, how that's not how production, yeah, like, production schedules work. Although, you know, but like, I was just floored by how true that felt. I mean, for folks who don't know, a lot of fans are really upset about their sh the, the movie not giving space to uh, Endgame, not giving space for the relationship between Steve and Bucky. Like, regardless of whether or not you're someone who's like, this is full of gay subtext, or if you're somebody who has blinders on. Like the fact that they sort of refused to even give them a moment to really acknowledge each other and was something that people were really frustrated with in the narrative. They didn't even get the moment that Iron Man and Doctor Strange got. Because <laughs> God forbid anybody think anything is gay. So this, sh this show, meanwhile, is like, we're going to be actually specifically gay, not subtextually gay, and uh, we'll have the tragic couple so, unite. How about Danny Patrol? And everything, uh, Danny. Talk to me about Danny Patrol. Oh, man. I mean, you want to talk about Larry moments that just gut you. Uh, him doing the karaoke, in, like, in the bar, and you see him, You like, you see what, like, a happy, proud, confident out Larry looks like, and how joyous he is, and that there is a community for him to be a part of, and you can see him imagining it, and knowing that that level of happiness is out there, and it's so infectious, and then it just cuts to him still sitting there and walking out and knowing what he could have and him knowing what he could have and him still just rejecting it out of so much self-loathing. <sighs> Talk about, like, I can't think of anything where that just brought me so emotionally high and so emotionally low in a matter of seconds. And it's really believable because these people aren't going to have like a single solitary positive queer experience and then heal. Like that's not how it, things work. It, it was a nice right. fantasy to indulge in though. And I think Danny the street is such a great vehicle to indulge in those fantasies because he, it, Danny seems like such a, 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 a welcoming force in this world full of like self-hatred and the Bureau of normalcy. So for Larry to just get that one moment, I think was nice. I mean the the agent Wilson, you know, coming into coming into their own as a drag queen, and she has a line where she's like, "My face is beat, and I am not afraid." And then she fucking kicks a oh. white cop in the head. 
my please please make this a gift. My look is my. I think it was like uh, beating up a white cop. Thank you. I think it was uh, my face is beat. My look is flawless. I am dusted from head to toe, and the only thing I'm not is afraid of you. Thank you. I'm really pleased that someone remembered that. I watched that scene. I rewound and watched that scene around ten times, like that weekend it came out. That 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 is pretty perfect. I that wow. um the turn of that agent uh, took me by surprise, but it also delighted me. You know, they, they they looked like kind of uncomfortable in Boy Drag in the beginning of the episode, and it, it sort of was like the whole thing was conveyed like that they were not happy. And that they were uncomfortable, you know? Like, I feel like the acting sold that. And I believe uh, the actor, I believe that was, like, the original lead of Kinky Boots. Who they oh. had to do that, yeah. Oh, sweet. Yes, that's right. Great. It was actual drag performer. Yeah. Which is great. Which I love their line. They're like, oh, look at them serving us Terminator and King Tut realness. <laughs> um, oh, I mean, it wasn't in Danny Patrol, but it was late. It was uh, in uh, the penultimate episode. But when Danny Street shows up, that was the first time in a television show or really any fiction or media of any kind that I had seen the non-binary flag, and that was mm. really meaningful. You know, in the episode where, um, where Flex Metallo connects to Danny and they tell oh, – sorry, where, they, where, they, where, Danny, where Flex tells Danny that, uh, his, that his wife died, the flag goes down to half-mast – the non-binary flag. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I love Danny. Yeah. But I mean, it's such an interesting thing because in the comics, in the original comics, Danny is named after, you know, the drag queen, uh, like Danny LaRue, which is, of course, you know, French for the street. And um, so the origins of the character are in drag. And this was, you know, in this 90s comic, it's a drag character. And then in the modern incarnation, you know, while many drag queens live and perform on Danny the Street, Danny the Street isn't presented as being a street of drag. It's presented as being a gender nonconforming, non-binary street, which I think is sort of an interesting, an interesting choice with the, for the show that I think is significant. I mean, I'm certainly incredibly biased being non-binary. I certainly loved having that representation, but at the same time. Um, you know, I can't speak for the drag community and what Danny the Street might mean to that community and what the loss of that representation versus morally corrupt is. So I'm I'm too biased to have yeah. any real opinion. But it made me think about how a lot of in a lot of media and comics made by straight men who were like trying to get it right, but like not quite getting it over the lump. Um, a lot of characters who I think today we would be writing about as being trans uh, were basically written as being drag queens. And so for me, like, I felt like that might have been one of those moments. But, you know, who can say, right? I mean, all this stuff was there. It just wasn't something that Grant Morrison was going to acquaint himself with because he probably thinks he's cool and knows it all already. And it's like, no, you're cool and know a lot, but you don't know it all. Um, I mean, see, you know, I, I know that like all, you know, uh, neo pronouns like their or zir and stuff like that had that in the seventies. So like there definitely was stuff that they could have been using, but it's like, yeah, you know, Grant did what he, what he thought was like, yeah. Speaking of gender in this show, 
Um, one of the things I, I, I've read a lot more of the Doom Patrol comics since our last episode. It's, I, I haven't read everything, but I've dug in a lot farther into the Grant Morrison, Richard Case run. And I've been consistently just like shocked at how much from the show is straight from the comics. Uh, like way more than I would have expected, actually. Um, I kind of assumed it was more like a, a show. I, I thought that the show would sort of have like a similar tone and similar characters. I did not expect that like the whole like we're in a snow globe, uh, beard, you know, beard, the uh, the beard guy beard hunter beard hunter like the, i didn't that is like it was from the n- again not having read the comics it was fun going online and seeing people post almost like this green to screen like panel to screen direct like one-to-one translation one of the things that really struck me in terms of differences because there were so many similarities <laughs> is in the episode where um robot man goes into jane's head which is a wonderful comic and a wonderful episode um, he tries to follow her into this one area and, uh, one of her altars, black Aeneas says that no man can follow and she slashes, and it, you know, it, because this is all happening in Cliff's mind, Cliff is envisioning himself. Sorry, this is in the TV show. Cliff is envisioning himself as having, you know, his, his human body. So we're all looking at Brendan Fraser for a change. There's a great reason to have Brendan Fraser wearing that sweet ass leather jacket. <laughs> He's got great costumes. And it was nice to see his face, you know. You got a lot more emoting when he's not a robot. Um, For sure. Though the robot, I mean, the suit's great, and the physical actor they have doing it, I think, does a phenomenal job. Him and um, the physical actors for him and Negative Man, I think, just do a lot to add to the characters. Yeah, and I hadn't realized they were there at first. Um, oh, so, uh, so he went, so when he sees him, he's in, he looks like a human cause he's in his own mind when he's in her mind. And, um, so Black Anias like swipes at him with her like wolf lady death strike-ish sort of claws and some of his skin comes off and his robotness is revealed. So then he starts tearing off his human skin and he's saying, I am not a man. Um, and once he's like full robot, no more human skin, he says, I was a man, but I'm not that man anymore and I'm better for it. And I was just like floored by that. And then Anias grabs his junk, which the show remind us, reminded us that it happened before, right? Like um, Jane, like as Hammerhead grabs his crotch when Jane, when, when Hammerhead first met Steele, uh, also Brandon Fraser's crotch was grabbed by the sexual assailant who's like the industry dude who fucking assaulted him. Um, so... This is a lot. Like, I'm kind of amazed that he was, like, okay with them basically recreating this horrible thing that happened to him. But, like, the show is amazing for that. Is int- that. that is interesting. You know, for all, there's a lot of discussion about it. Cliff violating uh, Jane's autonomy. But the show really doesn't go into how, in her own way, Jane violates Cliff it in her own way. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but, never, but NIS grabs his junk as if to confirm, like, see, you're not a man. And I'm sort of like, yeah, no, that's not why he's not a man. He's, this is like, it doesn't matter if he has drunk or not. That's not. Yeah. That's that not seemed unnecessarily on the note like, that like this big speech was what mattered. And like going from, I also think Brendan Fraser to robot for man. somebody like Cliff Steele. I think he defined his masculinity so much through his kind of performative masculine activities, like driving a race car and having affairs. And so for him, I think 
those activities were very central to his masculine identity. And so for him to not have those anymore, I think is incredible, incredibly, well, initially it was incredibly damaging for him. So part of his character's journey was accepting who he is, even without those parts. The idea that, the idea that like his, uh, his pit crew manager was sleeping with his wife, that he was being like sexually emasculated, you know, what, uh, you know, the thing essentially being emasculated, uh, what, was a source of such like rage, like deep rage that offended his very existence. Like as Cliff Steele, as Robot Man, he can almost becomes a bit he's of like a source almost, of pride he's in how beyond much those human he's changed. In the comics, the scene is a little bit different. He uh, Cliff is still in just he never looks like a person. He's just in straight up robot form, and he says, "I'm not a man." I it was all burned or ripped away or amputated. All that is left is the brain. I don't want to hurt Jane. I don't want to hurt any of you. And he starts taking off his clothes um, because he's you know a robot man in some cool punk rock outfit. Uh, so he takes off his cool punk rock outfit to make the point that like no, there's like no human underneath that. There's just robot. And he says, "Look at me. Let me through. I am not a man." And there is no crotch grabbing, although Anais does threaten to castrate him. I don't know. I mean, Ben, I know that I sort of shared some of those panels with you. I was wondering if you had thoughts about the symbolism and the differences between those two versions of the scene. I think, so again, not only being passionately familiar with the comic, it's definitely, the comic is definitely so much more literal and I think Mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of the, like, powerful series-long kind of character arc and progression. But I wonder if the more on-the-nose literalness is possibly fitting for the comic, where I think it's a little more explicit about the sexual violence that Jane suffered, to the point where maybe like literal, where it's like having to more literally state that there is nothing there, that that there is physically nothing there that can threaten her with like with what that great like terrible trauma was, but it still all in all feels a little less thematically resonant and doesn't tie into Cliff's character, like long-term character arc as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that is true. Huh. Um, the whole thing with her dad being made of puzzle pieces is in the comic. It's in the show. That was all very literal. And I think it's interesting because uh, the puzzle. It, so when she confronts her dad in the show, her dad is made of puzzle pieces, but it's not just the puzzle that she was doing when he went to abuse her. The puzzle, I think, is also like the puzzle of why he did it in the first place, right? Like the puzzle that she's trying to understand is why did this happen to me, uh, which of course can't be answered because there's no explanation or justification for why someone does that to a child. Um, but I thought that was a really powerful yeah, And I think there. that it's, and, it's yeah, another instance of, you know, kind of explicating mm-hmm. why Jane's character is so tragic because she goes from abusive relationship to abusive relationship. And when she's in the mental institution, her only defense is to kind of formulate the Dr. Harrison persona and become an abuser herself as she kind of fights back against um, the doctor who is torturing her and in turn kind of psychoanalyzes and tortures him. And so it's just this feedback loop of tragedy and abuse that she's experiencing mm-hmm. uh, until really she forms a relationship with Cl- with Cliff. Because she's obviously abused when she's um, un- under the guise of Niles Calder. 
So oh, yeah, I mean, know, just um, completely gaslit, and you see what even the thought of being put in uh, with the original Doom Patrol does to her, and just the lies involved in that. Mm. Well, you know, in the last episode, uh, our, our other guest Mark had said that um, they were thinking these days, dad feels are the new. Um, sorry, guys, hold on one second. I'm gonna find this. I want to quote it accurately. Okay. Uh, Mark was, so our guest from the last, uh, uh, on our last Doom Patrol go around, Mark had said, quote, dad feels are the new romance, uh, because of the way the show really focused on like uh, the father daughter relationships and especially with, um, with Jane and Cliff. And, um, I think the show, I hope is still sort of maintaining the relationship in that direction and not towards romantic one, but uh, in would- the comics, it is a romantic relationship. Yeah, no, I, it would be such a bizarre turn now in the show to turn it towards romance. Um, really hoping it, yeah, I don't think it will, but like, I kind of, what it was in the comics. I, I almost kind of get going towards the parental relationship, if only because uh, no one ever started shipping wars yeah, over that. father figures. <laughs> uh, if yeah. it did, the Star Trek Discovery fandom would be a mess. Oh, gosh. <sighs> I don't want to think about that. Anyway, um, I, I just, I, I think like, Cliff goes to okay, so right. much trouble um. to be a father figure. <laughs> uh, he, the number of peanut butter jelly sandwiches he makes that get, then get destroyed, um, I think is, is a great runner throughout the show, but it, that, that's him trying to be a dad. And he, he was not that great at being a dad when he was a human. And so for him to try and like get it right when he's a robot, I think is, is pretty endearing. And so to try and like turn that into, to a romance, I think would be a a, a mistake. Um, I, I love, um, when he's like, the after like kind of doing patrol split up after they found out Niles, and all he can think to do to kind of stay in Jane's life is to just leave her cold taco trucks, like food, yeah. make sure she's eating. It's really great. Um, oh, I want to talk about uh, everything with Cyborg a little bit. Um, uh, Jovian Wade, the actor who plays Cyborg, is amazing. Uh, I think a lot of folks are really feeling like this is the definitive cyborg in like anything. I've had a number of folks who I know um, who are black critics who uh, are not usually super fond of cyborg as a character say that this cyborg is like an amazing character and like is what cyborg should sort of always be here. And um, I'll just shut out one amazing acting moment is when, when uh, it's revealed that uh, Mr. Nobody is like, shaped himself to look like cyborg briefly. The oh. way Joven Wade makes his face look like Mr. Like, like Mr. Nobody. Like, can you get an, an Emmy for like a three second thing you do? Cause Holy fuck. That broke my brain. Also, that was a great costume. He had even with the, like the black hoodie and like the sleeveless big black hoodie. I know it was only for like, you only have for like two that, seconds. Yeah, but I'm like, dang, that's a great cyborg costume. <laughs> Um, also, so I like the cyborg wore clothes. I can I say I yes. love that cyborg was wearing clothes. He needs to. That's yeah. one of the problems. So okay, I have an essay that everyone should read. It's by the uh, the cr- the critic co- who goes by the name Son of Baldwin, 
Um, it's about why Cyborg as a character is super problematic. And I had always felt uncomfortable with the character. Uh, and he helped me realize why. I mean, basically, like, the character is like a castrated black figure as it exists in the comics. Like, literally, right? Um, and in the show, that's not... He's dating. He's on the dating apps. He's cute. You know, the dating app like, scene and is that is so perfectly demonstrating why he would wear clothes because it'd be really embarrassing to try like, and use a dating app with like robot abs. <laughs> I do like one thing from that article, um, and in regards to the castration, is I remember the article says, and this was written, I think, in 2014 or, or 2015, before uh, right before David Walker's run started. And the article says, it's not like David Walker's run is just going to give Cyborg his penis back, uh, when that ended up being exactly what happened. Yeah, that's true. DC, David uh, Walker is amazing. He is. And, it, and and I really liked what he did with the character, and I'm so mad that DC has almost ignored all like the great developments and evolutions they did, because it really just moved the character farther away from his tragedy, and just made him more of like an independent, complete person. I mean, one of the things that the show did so well is it had, it gives the opportunity for him to be the most functional person in the show, but to not be like in a perfectly great place um, to, you know, he gets to show his leadership, his initiative. He plays, he's big brother to the team, even though he's younger than them, which of course cyborg is at his best when he's big brother. Like we know that like he's the big brother to the world. Um, uh, but he's still like dealing with this, his thing with his father, not trusting him. And the whole way it's constructed for him as a young adult dealing with his dad is completely believable and realistic. I liked, um, um, I liked that he was a bit of a celebrity. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to see that. I've always kind of been one, ever since they made him on the Justice League in the comics, I've wanted to see that. Like he's the one person that can't hide himself, that has no secret identity. He's been one of the seven biggest superheroes for years. By all by all standards, he should be one of yeah, so the, like the top um, like so that, three that most famous people on the is, planet. Makes his presence in the point. Doom Patrol kind of all the more believable because what's a better place for an A-lister to hide out in than with a bunch of D-list superheroes? Yeah, and trying to inspire them as like almost a like project. But I, I loved how like the show, so like I loved how the show was sort of like, your dad is a villain, but your dad isn't a super villain. Like, you know, the sort of like how the system played the father against their son, but it's not like the father was without his, without, you know, massive mistakes, you know, manipulating his son's oh. mind and like trying to protect him in a way that was actually more dangerous. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I can't tell if I'm disappointed or relieved that the dad survived, just because that was such a brutal moment. But I almost yeah. wonder if it was just too heavy to handle, like Fry's dog. Like that's almost too intense of an origin. Cyborg tricked into beating he, his own father to death. And even yeah. when um, uh, Vic is trying to tell his dad about Mister Nobody. His dad is like, well, the JLA has all credible threats on a watch list. Like, y y everything you think is a concern, my son, is nonsense. Just shut up and let me do more experimenting on you. I remember one of the things I was excited about going into the show was I was going to see how they kind of contrast 
robot man, like kind of Cliff and Cyborg and their attitudes towards their own respective accidents, given the similarities and differences. And, you know, especially kind of, you know, starting in Titans where we get like a fair amount of Cliff, you know, not being able to eat, not being able to drink and not being able to experience anything. And then one of the very first things we see Cyborg doing is eating a bunch of French fries and drinking a soda. So even despite how similar the circumstances are, there's degrees. And, you know, I feel like one of the big things we talk about in terms of representation um, is having enough that no character has to carry the whole weight, like has to carry the weight of representing everything on their shoulders. You know, having enough queer people that, you know, they, they one doesn't that the one queer person doesn't have to be perfect because there's a bunch of other queer people that can all be flawed in their other ways. So, again, not being disabled and, again, possibly being the wrong person to talk about this, um, it seemed like, you know, there was kind of that a lot of disabled representation in Doom Patrol that kind of exploited from different angles uh, between Cliff, Cyborg, uh, Jane, and Niles. Like, you all had... You had were all I, I different totally representations agree. of it. I, I love when that's also flipped on its head when I th- in episode five... Um, Cyborg's arm just suddenly overcharges and it explodes. And then, you know, he's kind of like, he has this like button on the back of his head that Cliff pushes that sends out an SOS to his dad. So it, he's turned from this, you know, awesome big brother, morally upright hero. And he suddenly plunged into this body horror where his arm is exploded and burnt off and he has no bodily autonomy at all. And he, he has to, and somebody else forces him to call his dad for help. And so in that moment, he's certainly less less of him is left than even Cliff Steele, who would never have to resort to doing something like that. Yeah. I would say it's like the blowed-off arm and stuff shows that cyborg comics are not taking nearly yeah. enough inspiration from Akira. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the, I want to talk a little bit about the show from a meta perspective. One of the things that I really, uh, thought about when I just sort of began watching clips of it again to prepare for this is, um, you know, having the, having, uh, Mr. Nobody serve as the narrator, which we don't really like, it takes you a minute to recognize that's what's happening in the beginning of the show, but it's pretty quickly, you know, clear having the antagonist, <coughs> sorry, having the antagonist serve as the narrator, positions the audience as co-antagonists of the characters. So he's beginning the show saying, look at these terrible people and their useless ways. And don't you wish you were watching a real superhero show? And like, he's sort of speaking for us and, you know, it's assuming that we're on his side of being critical. And it's sort of a cynical approach because it assumes that all the viewers are skeptics of the series to start with. Um, it didn't bother me, but I thought it was interesting because it was clear to me that the show did think that. The show was pretty sure that everyone watching the show was a skeptic. Either they were a skeptic of whether or not it made sense to have yet another superhero show in the first place, or they're a skeptic of whether or not it was a good idea to have like a D-teams, a D-list superhero show. So the show just sort of takes as for granted that everybody's a skeptic and goes with it and has us be the co-antagonist for the beginning of the series. And then we don't think about that for a while because, you know, you fall in love with these characters and you care about them, flaws and all. And then they sort of bring it back at the end when you suddenly have 
the for, the full fourth wall break on the second to last episode. Um, I don't know if anybody has thoughts about that as a device. It it is an uh, interesting. I mean, oh, sorry. I think it's kind of tragic in a sort of meta way because I I think the cynicism was proved correct due to DC's you know canceling of of Swamp Thing after one episode aired, and I'm I'm assuming there's not going to be any more Doom Patrol. Um, but it, I don't know if either of you watched Swamp Thing, but it's very good. Uh, yeah, not yeah, yet, but I definitely it's will. Totally right. worth it. Um, it's it's great, uh, and you know, obviously, I think we're all in agreement that we we love Doom Patrol, and so for so few eyeballs to be on these shows in a on a streaming service that is dying, I think is really sad, and and it it makes the cynicism of Mister Nobody seem very prescient, which I think it, it turns out to be unfortunate. Wow. It is an interesting, like, he almost, I can definitely feel like the traditional superhero, and he almost becomes both audience, at certain times I feel like nobody is almost um, a stand-in for a cynical audience, Um, you know, whenever Doom Patrol gets a little too sincere, cross over to a little too schmaltzy, and maybe we start to make fun of a little bit, there's the show telling us, yes, you're right to be feeling this way, Mm. like, let's have some fun with it. And then, especially near the end of the season, he almost becomes the D, like an executive, Warner's executive, where he's like, yeah. yes, this is what we need, a traditional superhero team fighting a traditional supervillain. Now that we've got what we really wanted, a traditional normal show. It only took us 15 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> he actually says, and when he says, "I'm powerful enough to control this whole streaming service," it's like yeah. kind of true, right? Yeah. But um, uh, you know, the CW if the CW will just let shows run forever if they get great if they like get awards and like great reviews. Come on, DC. Come on, Warner Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another I, point. Like, is is I get it. the the quality and depth of writing in the show as compared to like Green Arrow? I think is it, it's it, far and away superior. It, but how many? But Green Arrow is going to oh end God, up getting like yeah. seven or eight seasons. It's it's yeah, it's yeah. Major League Baseball versus T ball. Yeah. Like I yeah. like I really enjoy Arrow. Um, I've watched every episode. I have a lot of fun with it, but. I'm, you know, it's going to be 15 years from now, and I'm still going to be like rave, like raving about how good Doom Patrol was. Yeah, no, this is like Green Arrow, or I don't even call it Green Arrow because that is not Green Arrow, but whatever that show is compared to this is like CW versus A and E, like prestige television. Like it's not, it's like not even in the same planet. Uh, although I do want to say, I have, did Deadpool ruin the fourth, the fourth wall break? Did like Deadpool ruin that for us? Um, I, I don't know. I've it, it feels it feels like a- I've been reading comics long enough to know that Deadpool didn't invent the fourth wall, and I, I <laughs> so, like I'm going to blame Ambush Bug. Ambush Bug ambush ruined bug. the fourth wall break. But no, the Ambush Bug couldn't have ruined fucking it. Ambush like, Bug. It's not Ambush Bug. It's the it's Deadpool with the ubiquity. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I liked the. Because I feel like with Deadpool, it's like the joke is that I broke the fourth wall. I did like with Mr. Nobody, it's I broke the fourth wall, and I'm going to be the meanest internet troll I can possibly be towards my own show. Mm. 
Like, so at least it was a very different perspective and it was a very mean spirited perspective, but it did reinforce almost that this is a show almost controlled by the villain. Yeah. And, and I do like that interesting, like we're almost co-conspirators watching him manipulate these people. And then he speaks the ending into existence, right? I mean, it has like a very self-aware, this is a show about stories thing, which I'm beginning to feel is like being done everywhere. I feel like it's sort of a, a symptom of Neil Gaimanitis. I mean, Gaiman! Not that he invented it, but that like, it felt like it became to be such a constant t- trope after the success of so many of his stories. It's his, that. it's his born. But I enjoy the, it. He's the born. I enjoy I, he's the born identity to, uh, to uh, stories about stories, shaky cam. <laughs> the thing he did really good, but now everyone's just copying to the point where it's too much. But, you know, I, I liked the sort of meta usage of comics as a vehicle in this, you know, Danny communicating through comics themselves, everybody having to enter through the white space, like, i.e. literally entering through the margins of the story. I thought I connected that sort of to how these are characters who are marginalized in their existence. So they're only able to enter this like super heroic narrative through the margins of the story. Um, that's where, that's where they can write themselves into it. And then like right after like using the white margins to put the white spaces, right after entering the story through the white spaces, Rita says, quote, I shall be narrating my own tale from now on, quote. And yeah. of course it's Rita who figures it out first because she's an actress. So she understands. Stories. And I love that Rita, like being stretchy or big had almost nothing to do with Rita's powers. Just she became the most self-aware and self-assured in not only who she wanted to be, but who she was and accepting that. And that became such a power for her. Like I absolutely love her scenes with Ed Asner. Oh yeah. That broke me. (laughs) He would, uh, like when she hallucinates and watches that other actress, like slice her own wrists, like it's such kind of a, a jarring um, moment for the show because, like you know, again, it's easy to dismiss her story as kind of the least traumatic of of the team. Like, oh, she's a sad actress who was once a movie star, but to see her go, like you know, f- from the casting couch to facilitating other actresses to be on the casting couch and just the 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 systematic horrors that young women were subjected to in Hollywood you know uh, up, up until uh yesterday uh it it really i guess made her perspective all the more powerful and and, and made you wonder what things that that she could be harboring what i thought was just such a great line harboring just how insidious denial and self-rationalizations could be, and the cost of that was it was a win-win-win until it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I was expecting her tragic backstory to be like she like abandoned her own child or something. I was, um, it, I was glad they, did, I I was glad they didn't go with that one. That yeah. one would have felt a little too Black Widow, Age of Ultrani. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I also was watching a Verdon Fosse at the same time. And there was things about that there. Um, 
what did folks think about the Silver Age episode? Uh, John, you know, like the one where they see the the OG June Patrol and everything is very Silver Age. John, do you have thoughts on that one? Yeah, I uh, I I did really like that episode because it it really kind of uh, turned my perspective upside down on kind of what the Doom Patrol is, at least from uh, that, at least from, from the show's perspective. Um, and uh, what's his name? Sorry. Mento? Mento. Yeah, me, yeah, yeah, Mento. As, the, as Rita says I, I, several I kept times, to say I was glad. Dayton, I was glad Mento was. The fifth richest man. I was glad Mento was a dick. Mento. Yeah. Oh, my God. Something about Mento yeah, is not a good, good guy. I just love how Rita like always has to introduce him the same exact way and presumes everybody knows him. And I find that great. Steve D in the fifth richest man. Oh, never. Mento. I was going to say never change Rita, but I'm like, actually do. It's a great character arc. You go on. Exactly. Sorry. And, and I, I just, I mean, I love how much the, the show kind of changes your perspective on the, on both doom patrols in that, in that episode, because you keep kind of, uncovering these layers of like falsehoods and hallucinations and, you know, what is really going on and, and Mentos hypnotism and his powers and the, the sort of bizarre um, flashback to their battle with Mr. Nobody. And, you know, a, a cop turned into a pinata. Oh my yeah. God. And Fucking walking dead, walking dead, eat your heart out. That was so much creepier than like any, like just graphic blood and guts. And getting beat by a kid with a nightstick oh. and made me very happy. That I thought that whole I thought that episode was a very effective way of kind of raising the stakes and just kind of giving you a kind of reminder of if they keep if they because it's very easy for a villain to say like oh you'll be sorry if you keep pursuing me and just seeing how com- utterly and completely Mister Nobody could defeat someone mentally was a very good was a I feel like it was good because that was in the back of my head then the entire season where it's like, if they fail, this is how utterly broken they'll become. Mm. Yeah, Mr. Nobody plays the song Hot Diggity over and over again, and it drives people insane. Like he, he, he's, His power is so arbitrary that he could turn this stupid song into a Oh, man. It would work on me. Yeah. Oh. It, it how, about the so chum- how about the Chumba yeah. Wumba loop, yes. though, in the finale? I, for one, am grateful for a disembodied oh. Chumbawamba for bringing us back together. That oh, that moment uh, with Chumbawamba has one of my. It's a tiny moment that gets no attention, but it might be one of my. It might be the most charming moment in the whole series. It's Rita and uh, and Larry like riding up to the Doom, to Doom Patrol Manor in matching Razor scooters. And then just daintily leaving them, like just dropping them to the side as they run up. I love their friendship so much. Like they are like truly life partners, but like not romantic life partners. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like, Oh yes. They're the ones who don't get involved. And they just, that, that is true. Um, and they always take each other's side. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting dynamic. I, Um, their friendship was, such a joy. Well, one fact, fun fact about Chumbawamba is that they're like actually an anarchist punk band with like a ton of really politically significant songs. I love that. 
which is like super political. So I think it's, it's crazy. It's funny that Americans kind of think of them as like, because of that song and like that song kind of being a little irritating. That's some, that's, that sounds in character for America though. That's our kind of bullshit. We're like, we're going to assume you have one song and play it to death and make fun of you for it. Fuck you, man. Adam and the ants were the fucking best. Hey, Um, blur decided, blur decided grunge sucks. Let's make a parody of grunge and tell me that that's not the only fucking Blur song that's played in America. Yeah. Oh, God. It's terrible. So, yeah, Chumbawamba's like that. It's called Song <laughs> 2. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> when I feel happy, man, oh, woo-hoo. You guys We're are my favorite. I just want you to know that I think we should all someday go to a concert. Yes. Um, so, Chumbawamba. Definitely. Not a joke, but did bring everyone together. And indeed, the chorus being repeated over and over again would be frustrating. I, I was, you know, we talked a lot about how great the music is on this show. I I listened to like T-Rex all the time. Um, but when Hot Love came on, I was like, <gasps> and then I proceeded to listen to that particular T-Rex album a lot over and over again. I like Frank, I was like, I'm listening to T-Rex so much. And my husband's like, you listen to T-Rex all the time. This is not new. I'm like, yes, but I haven't been listening to this particular T-Rex a, album as much. I'm a right big now. fan of a great opening credit sequence, and I feel like it can be a lost art. But boy, did they just bring it on Doom Patrol's opening. Like, mm. great song with haunting visuals that were so thematically resonant. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree. I, I think... Um, it it just another example of the detail this show goes into to to make itself stand out amid the you know the million other reasons. You see the the brains jar from the comics in there, mm-hmm. the brain, yeah. i.e., boyfriend of Monsieur Mala, who we actually get reference to in the amazing scene. It's a flashback to Mister Nobody, and he's talking to his girlfriend, and it's all everything's all very nineteen thirties. And he says, "She's like, how was your day at the Evil Brotherhood?" And he says, "I got laid off, replaced by a gorilla." which, i.e., got replaced by Monsieur Mala. For folks who don't know from the comics, Monsieur Mala is a French guerrilla revolutionary uh, created during the Silver Age in which um, DC Comics was full of evil guerrillas. There are complex racial politics behind that, as well as weird marketing mojo. Him and the Um, brain are boyfriends. Then him and the brain are boyfriends. He's boyfriends with a brain in a jar. They're great. If we ever have more Doom Patrol, we could have a wonderful, super villainous. I would love gay couple. Now, what would you guys think about this? Because I would love more Doom Patrol, but I feel like the main characters' arcs were just so fully fleshed out and complete. It almost wouldn't break my heart if we would just get like one amazing season. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want them to regress the way that you know comic books is kind of it's what happens when when comic book characters advance they inevitably regress in the next story arc because you have to keep making more issues so to have them do that in order to tell more stories for the show i think would be a little yeah disappointing so if if we for some miracle get more Doom Patrol episodes, I, I would hope they would find a way to further the story arcs rather than like there's that, yeah like the fact that the characters were so complete makes me be able to you know, some shows where just one season's not enough. I definitely feel like, especially, you know, it's a bit of a cliche. The villain gives you a fantasy of everything you want and the hero's rejected. But in this case, it was so well done. It was just such a great capstone to 
everything that come before it's you know there's definitely ways forward and i would love to see it but i don't know how you capture just the magnitude of the character arcs that they went on in season one yeah i would like the show i would like the show to get real meta and have like every member of the justice league appear in one episode like oh we're lost where's well, our definitely like there's, there's interesting justice league uh interaction with doom patrol in the comics that would have been a lot of fun to be able yeah. to have here i would love i if they is season two i hope mr nobody just shows up like every half hour just going like have we been canceled yet no all right we still got time finish the episode before they pull the plug <laughs> no i mean i you know i do think that like they put off a good ending. I'd love for there to be more, you know, I want to, uh, especially because I feel like we're getting to a point of such good breakthrough for them. Like I want Larry to like really, f- I want Larry to go to pride. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, and I, I need just, Larry I need, and I, rainbow colored bandages. You know, I mean, yeah, exactly. And like, I, you know, but it's true that we, we, you know, this is not a bad ending point, but I, I don't know. I feel like for me, like the thing I need to have happen is I need Larry to go to Pride. There's definitely more concepts, you know, there's, you know, just starting to get into like Dorothy Spinner, would love to see like Rebus show up, mm-hmm. uh, Brain, Miss Yormala. There's definitely more characters and concepts I'd love to see. But in terms of like, boy, was this just like a phenomenal, like the story of Rita Farr, you know? Yeah, ultimately. Uh, I didn't even mention, like, how fucking the beginning part of the series just just completely smacks down the Catholic Church. So I I guess it's a good thing that it didn't get more notice because they would have gotten yelled at. But the whole thing with the Church of the Unwritten Book, that whole episode, there's so many sense of Catholicism in that. Uh, As well as when they go to that, like, demon world um, with the puppets. I'm forgetting. It's like a germanic sounding word all of this stuff is a center of catholicism Nerdheim. Nerdheim, thank you which is directly from the comics <laughs> all snow globes are oh. called Nernheim now <laughs> actually i'll put this to you john any thoughts about this show with respect to catholicism um well i think the speaking as a catholic i think that the catholic church is um very open to uh or it it's a whole load of bullshit. So it, the the arbitrary nature of all these agents of Nernheim, like, oh, this order and this order and this order, and they're all these kind of cartoony, like, real strange um, villain henchmen that come out and try and, you know, get the Doom Patrol. I think, you know, you can obviously parallel that to the various orders in in, in the Catholic Church. Um, but I But I think it's... Really appropriate now that uh, you know it was a week ago when um, the the Catholic Church basically came out and said like you know trans people aren't real, uh, and so for now to have this sort of uh, very LGBTQ positive representation in a show, I think is is very. I like how the Catholic I like how the Catholics think they can treat trans people like reverse Tinker Bells. Come on, everyone. If we don't believe hard enough, they'll go away. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, their definition of go away means we'll all kill themselves, be- which is like, I don't know. They're very bad at being Christian, I think. Yeah. From my perspective. Yeah. 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 So to, to see, like, the, you know, the, 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 um, 
like the 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 king and queen just uh of of Nernheim on their thrones and and the father like with his with his throat slit the just this arbitrary exhibition of like negative power um i think was a, a very a demonstrably uh powerful or in, intelligent uh, choice by the show well i have to quote marilyn from jersey from that episode who says the only God I worship is Springsteen. And I spat yes. in his face twice. Truly nothing more Jersey so has ever good. been spoken. Um, she was what a wonderful, beautiful dynamo of a minor character. This yeah. show really had them. It did beard hunter and, and Marilyn from Jersey. I mean, morally corrupt. What an incredible one episode character. Oh God! The fake, the the, the low rent John Constantine, who yes. is from the comics. Yeah. Low rent John Constantine is actually from the Will comics. Oh my! I love just the parade of Constantine and name onlys that DC writers had to make up when they weren't allowed to actually use Constantine. I want so weird. I want them all together in a book one day. Just how all- are none of them women though? That makes me cranky. Yeah. Right. Right. right? Like we deserve woman john constantine mm-hmm. or like or like someone who's not a dude john the world deserves joan constantine thank you thank you because joanna constantine from sandman is not not the same personality no. so um so is there anything else that we want to hit on um or shall we wrap i just want to say again that man every actor like all the main actors like matt boomer like diane guerrero april balby brendan frazier uh, I'm blanking on Cyborg's actor. Help me out. Jovian Wade. Jovian, Jovian Wade. Wade. They all just did such phenomenal jobs. And Alan Tud- Alan Tudyk, I thought, did the work of his career as Mr. Nobody. Like, not only like was he in the greatest in like the comedy and more comedic roles we knew he would be in, but I thought he was still just a wonderful, menacing, terrifying villain when the script called for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Yeah, because we. It was just so great to see somebody really chew into the scenery. Like you had some great human moments with with your main characters, but to have somebody just come in and, and twirl his mustache, I think, was a lot of fun. Um, but what one of my favorite small moments was during the dating app episode, where uh, one of the girl or women who uh, responded to Vic's uh, dating request said, "Oh, say booyah." And he said, I don't say booyah. That was wonderfully and, meta. And Grid says, you, you have said booyah 31 times since the accident. This is well above the threshold of a catchphrase. <laughs> it was so good. I liked how they kind of relied with Grid. I kind of liked how they relied on comic book knowledge to sell the paranoia. Because, again, knowing the comics, how Grid kind of takes over and becomes one of Cyborg's uh, big villains, I was certainly expecting Cyborg's paranoia about him to pay off. So it definitely helped me get into, like, I was definitely as paranoid as Cyborg was about mm-hmm. what ended up not being a thing, you know, unless we get future seasons. But I thought that was, you know, using kind of comic book knowledge as an interesting way to kind of get further into the character's uh, paranoid, paranoid perspective. Yeah, and I loved seeing the actor, um, Phil Morris, who formerly Seinfeld's Jackie Childs, getting real good material to work with, too. Also, Smallville's Martian Manhunter. Oh, oh, cool. I saw him sing the national anthem at a local baseball game, so I was concerned that his career might not be where it needed to be, but he's doing a lot of voice work, at least, so. Yeah. 
but this was great. So always got the Terminator 2 money. Oh, yeah. Father um, of Skynet okay. and Cyborg. Oh, wait, no, that's, um, no, wait, I'm sorry. That was Cyborg's dad in Justice League. Oh, yeah, I was getting, I was getting, I was, Joe Morton. I was getting my Silas Stones confused. It's the same, you know, Silas Stone. I get it. So yeah. thank you both for joining me. Um, remind our listeners where we can follow your further works and creative works online. Uh, what about you, Ben? So uh, you can definitely follow me at, at Ben the Con on Twitter, uh, BenConComics.com. And my current comic is Griffin Galaxy's Most Wanted. Uh, chapter four comes out uh, this Wednesday, July 20, uh, June twenty sixth, and then it comes out uh, every few weeks on New Comic Book Day on Comicsology. Woohoo! And John, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Quasar Sniffer, uh, where I talk way too much about comic books and uh, our current political state. And and also movies. I'll be on Twenty Six Movies from Hell uh, again when we get to the Y episode. And I would just encourage you to all to patronize your local comic book store, where friendly staff members will be able to recommend great comics that you should be reading. And you do a great job of doing weekly posts of, of recommended books. So thank you, folks. Definitely a good place to look for suggestions. Of course, I myself am on Twitter too much at e l a n a underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana Brooklyn. And um, I will be back soon. And uh, as we like to say here, keep it geeky. Oh, wait, sorry, rewind. Uh, Remember, Graphic Policy Radio is now on iTunes and SoundCloud and Spotify. Spotify makes it really easy for you to go and listen to specific episodes. Um, You don't get to see all of my cool, like, graphics I put together necessarily on that, which is how you can see all those different images on blog talk radio and on our website. But um, I know Spotify is a you know popular listening app for folks. So I'm excited that we are able to have the show there now too. And as we like to say,